Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Good morning, everyone. Um, Today's reading is from the first book of Peter, chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors, as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, uh, good morning. My name is Ian. I am the pastor here at Ecclesia, and we have been in a series walking through the book of First Peter. And as, as Jill reads that, you can almost hear just like the sense of What? We're supposed to do what? I mean, right now, what's going on in our national politics is an actual impeachment of the president and a, and a hearing then a proceeding. And so honor those in authority. Honor everyone. This is what we're going to explore today. And, and what I want to share with you this morning um, comes a lot from my own life. But honestly, I have this thing within me where I hear something done really well. And for me, my impulse is not to copy it or to take it. My impulse is like, okay, cool. Now I'm going to make my own version of that. And about six months ago, I was listening to a sermon uh, by a friend of mine named John Tyson. And he was talking about honor. And I heard this sermon and was just like, you know what? I actually couldn't do better than that. So a lot of what you're going to hear today comes from uh, Tyson's church, comes from the sermon that he preached back in January of 2019. And so I want to say that with full disclosure here this morning. A lot of the points, a lot of the frameworks that I'm going to give you are are from somewhere else. But I have been living with this paradigm um, for the last several months, and it truly has been shaping me and putting language to things that I felt like God was doing in my own life. And so this morning, my, my hope is not just that we have this nice time around the Word of God. My hope is sincerely that God is going to do something that is paradigm-shaping within our church. Uh, because as we talk about honor, and as we're going to see, we live in a society that is devoid of honor. And so, Joanna, can you put the picture of the flag up? Many of you have been to a football game or something of the like. And our culture has devised these giant field-sized flags for this very reason. And it's kind of amazing. I've been to a couple of Eagles games. And like literally you have people that have been drinking the whole day. And you, you talk to them and you're like, wow, that person is gone. But they unfold this flag. And all of a sudden, even the most irreverent person adopts this posture of like, wow. Silence falls over the crowd. Grown men who, you know, maybe a few too deep stand in reverence. And the national anthem is sung. 
And so for many of you, you've had this experience. And I was trying to think of things that are truly honored in our culture. And this is one of them that came to mind. Now, Joanna, can you put the next picture up? And then there was a gentleman named Colin Kaepernick who, who saw, I think very wisely so, that this symbol was not just one of those run-of-the-mill symbols. It was a symbol of great importance. And so he began to use it as a fulcrum. He, he began to, to, to kneel to one knee during the singing of the national anthem while the flag was unfurled across the field. And this begins to show us the complexity of honor in our culture. You see, for some people, they served in the military. They gave a part of their lives for the flag that stretched out over the field. And for, for Colin Kaepernick and his friends to be kneeled down in this moment is this incredible moment of irreverence. Now for others, and the reason Colin Kaepernick is bowing down and kneeling on his knee is because he says that brown and black bodies in our culture have been dishonored. And so he uses this symbol as a moment to call attention to this. And so the question becomes, where is the honor in this moment? And, and what you see from the discussions that ensue is that we are actually quite incapable of hearing one another. People choose their camps. They choose their sides. And whichever side they are, are on sort of dictates how they feel about the situation. So either people feel that the, the people that would uh, criticize Colin Kaepernick are correct, or people feel that, that Kaepernick is right to do what he's doing. And so what I want to do this morning, because so many of us live in this kind of complex paradox of honor. First Peter comes into this situation and he says, honor the emperor. Now you may say to Peter, well, you've never had leaders like the ones that we have. And Peter would pat you on the head and say, listen, have you ever met Nero? Nero, the one who literally torched the city of Rome and then blamed the Christians for doing it. Peter writes, honor the emperor. Give honor to those to whom it is due. And for us this morning, what I hope to establish in this church is that we would be a people who have a culture of honor. And so what I want to do, and I just want to lay out kind of the next couple of weeks, we're going to dig into some of these specifics as it pertains to how we are to interact as the people of God with the government, what that means for us. But this week, I simply want to talk about this, this idea of honor. Because as, as we'll see, there is such a deficiency in our culture that oftentimes it's almost like we are speaking a different language. And so first, I, I want to establish for you that honor is the operating system of the kingdom of God. Honor is the way that God, his posture towards us. And so we're just going to do a, a brief biblical survey here. First, honor is your destiny. Revelation 5, verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and they numbered myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, all singing with full voice, and listen to the words of their song. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Honor is the part of the song that we were destined to sing to God and we will sing it into eternity. Honor is, is intrinsic to the Trinity. John 5 verse 22 
Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so honor is fundamental within the the living unity of Father, Spirit, and Son. There is honor. God glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies God through the Spirit. Honor is in the natural order. The wild animals, it says in Isaiah 43, will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. If you ever wondered what the jackals and ostriches are doing when you don't see them, well, they're honoring God. They're giving him glory. Paul tells us that we are to honor God with our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? And he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We talk about pushing against the modern sense of individualism, what it means to live in the world. Paul says that you are not your own. That your life is a gift and it is to be stewarded in honor. Proverbs teaches us to honor God with our wealth. He says, the writer of the Proverbs says, Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with new wine. Now, I'm not a health and wealth teacher, but that sounds great to me, right? Overflowing. Isaiah teaches us that culture will honor God. There's this interesting thing that happens in the book of Isaiah. It starts off with this criticism of the ships of Tarshish. That's kind of hard to say, and I could mess that up and get in trouble. And Isaiah is announcing this criticism of these ships. But later on in Isaiah 60, it says, For the coastland shall wait for me, the ships of Tarshish, first, to bring your children from far away, their silver and their gold with them. And what Isaiah is describing is these things that we build up for our own use and our own advantages, these ships that were used for trade or for military advantages. Isaiah is saying that that in and of itself will be redeemed, that it will be used for the glory and the honor of God. You think about like in our own culture, like Mark Zuckerberg, when he, when he came up with Facebook, wasn't thinking this is a tool to honor God. But even sort of what Isaiah is getting at here is that in so many ways, God uses the tools that we sort of design for our own ends, and God uses them to to honor himself and to bring glory to him. We see this as the, uh, the Roman road system was developed, and that became the network upon which the apostles and the missionaries traveled the ancient world and brought the good news about Jesus. Culture is sort of neutral, but God is taking even the things that we invent and using them for his glory. Paul reiterates Peter's instructions to honor authority in Romans 13, verse 7. Pay to all what is due, he says. Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. And then in 1 Peter, we'll see in a couple weeks that Peter instructs Husbands, to honor your wives. Now, this was patriarchal society. Peter even refers to the wife as the weaker vessel, and we'll get into that. But Peter instructs the husbands. He says, honor your wives 
And many times, in many of these sort of household codes, the husbands were left out of the instruction manual because all of it was designed to, to revolve around the orbit of the male who was at the center of the household. But Peter has instructions for them. He says, you have a responsibility to honor your wife. And then he even goes so far to say, like, or your prayers will be hindered. So next time you're having a, you know, a fight with your wife or your husband, ladies, you can say, you better honor me. Otherwise, your prayers, God's not going to listen to you anymore. That's a joke. First Timothy chapter 5. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, it is my honor to give you that message today. Those who preach and who teach are worthy of double honor. And Now, there's a lot of ways this goes wrong in the church, and I've seen it up close. But you see, you begin to get a picture of how honor is not just something that's ancillary to our walk as the people of God, but it is, it is absolutely core to what it means to, to live as the people of God. Jesus is trying to show us this framework of honor. And John Tyson says, he says, if you don't get honor right, you don't get the Christian life right. And I think in our moment, we're seeing this moment of sort of cultural deconstruction of honor. Think about if you've read the news at all this week. Think about the way that the politicians have talked about the other side, dependent upon which side they fall. Now, do they say, well, you know, the person on the opposite side of me is a super reasonable, very well thought out. They, they made great arguments. I just disagree. No, they say things like they are treacherous and horrible and, and, and they insult their intelligence. And so if this is how our leaders conduct themselves, it just sort of becomes a microcosm of who we are as a people. We are a people who live in a culture that is devoid of honor. And it's not just the culture that's in a moment of honor deconstruction, but the church in and of itself is in a moment of honor deconstruction. There have been so many hypocrisies that have been brought to light. Leaders who were thought to be bastions of integrity and faithfulness have been shown to be different when the lights are not on. And so the church is undergoing this moment of honor deconstruction. And the society and the world is asking, why should we listen to you? Look at how you live. You say you're pro-life, and yet you don't live your life as if everybody throughout the course of their entire life has significance and value. You don't honor them. And so the church is undergoing this moment right now. Malachi 2 prophesies about these kinds of moments. He says, and now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will listen, if you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. And look what he says here. I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and I will put, out, put you out of my presence. Now, Malachi is very vivid there, but you could see this sense where the church, in not living into our calling to honor God and to honor people, to love them as God shows us that we should, where we have shown ourselves lacking in the face of the wider culture. And here's what begins to happen. When we live without honor, 
when we live in light of the sort of societal norms that are put forth to us, we begin to be people not just of dishonor, but people of contempt. The psychologist Robert C. Solomon places contempt on the same continuum as resentment and anger. And so psychologists try to map, like, what's going on in somebody's mind? What's going on when you experience anger? And so the psychologist Robert Solomon maps these on the same continuum as resentment and anger. Here's what he says. He says, resentment is reserved for higher status individuals. Have you ever had a boss? You're just like, I mean, you're dishonoring them. You're like, this guy. What a clown, right? But, but you're sort of, your power is not equal to theirs. And so you look at them and you just sort of, you view them with resentment. Anger is reserved for equal status individuals. This is what happens a lot of time in marriages. There are two people of equal status and they are angry with one another. But that anger can devolve into the opposite of honor, into contentment. Contempt is something we reserve for lower status individuals. And here's what happens. You compare yourself, you judge them, and you lower their value. You begin to look at that person that you have anger towards, and you're like, actually, no. Like, and you begin to dishonor them. David Hume, in his studies on contempt, says contempt involves apprehending the bad qualities of someone while simultaneously creating a comparison between this person and ourselves. Contempt involves a positive self-feeling. And here's what David Hume is saying. As we begin to, we look at the behavior, we look at something that somebody has done to us, and then we make that, we make that a statement upon their whole existence. So if somebody wrongs you, you're like, you know what, that person, they just always do that kind of stuff. That's who they are. And then as you begin to sort of dissect them in this way, what you find is that as you paint yourself as the victim, as you look at their actions and you minimize their value as a human, you find that it feels amazing. Have any of you ever ever been unjustly treated? And here's the thing, friends. You may be right. You may be right that they have fundamentally wronged you. But what happens is we begin to dwell in that, seri- in that sense of contempt. We begin to dwell in our contempt for that person. And every time we go there, it's like a drug. It feels amazing because you are right. And what we do is we devalue them as humans. We recognize the deficit in them. Jesus has a teaching for this. He says, don't look, at the, don't look at the speck in your neighbor's eye and ignore the log in your own eye. We recognize the de- deficit in the other person. We judge them. We move them to the other side of us, and we say, oh, I'm not, I'm not like that person because that person does these kinds of things. You lower their value, and then you feel amazing about it. And you know who does this in the Bible? Satan and the Pharisees. I don't know how much you know about the Bible, but that is not the team that you want to be on. And so the Bible, 1 Peter, as it meets us here in this moment, is calling us to be a people of honor. We were made for honor. Psalm 8, verse 5 says, You have made them, and he's talking about people. 
people made in the image of God. He says, you have made them a little lower than God. You have crowned them. Each one of you has been crowned with glory and honor. And you have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under their feet. God has a high opinion of every single person that he has made. He has crowned each and every single person that you see, including the person in the mirror, with glory and honor. And he has given them dominion. He says, come, work alongside me, rule alongside me. C.S. Lewis says, he says, it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. This sense that this person has been crowned with glory and honor. All friendships, all loves, all play, and yes, all politics. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. And friends, I wonder how often when we're going about our days, whether it be the relational kind of strife that we experience or the slight annoyances with people that will never know their name, do we look at the world with a filter of honor? Or are people just a minor inconvenience? Are people just sort of in our way? And so what I want to do today, I, I hope you've sort of seen that, that honor is the operating system of God. That there is sort of an honor crisis going on in our culture. And so how can we, as the people of God, begin to be people who live into the kind of honor that God calls us to both receive and to give away? And so, I don't know if you're, you're familiar with this. Some of you wear sunglasses. Some of you wear expensive sunglasses. Some of you wear cheaper sunglasses. For those of you who buy cheap sunglasses because you will lose them, I respect you. That is a very good decision. They make these sunglasses that are actually, uh, the lenses are Instagram filters. And so, you know, I don't know if you've ever taken a picture and you're like, oh, that picture's not very great. But then you apply the, the, the filter to it on Instagram, you're like, magic. Like this, this looks good. I, I now look very good in this angle. And so you can actually buy sunglasses that are just Instagram filters. And so now everything you see can just be filtered through this lens of awesome. And I think as we talk about honor, God is calling us to what John Tyson calls honor filters the way that you see the world, the lens through which you see the world. And he gives a couple of these that I think are so profound. And just as we could begin to embrace what it means to see people and really see them. And so he names six honor filters. When you're having an interaction with someone, this, is, this goes from everybody to the person that you know so well to the person that you've just met for the first time. How can you live with the sort of honor that God has crowned them with, that they have as their intrinsic value? And so Tyson gives us six honor filters, and I think these are brilliant. The first one is you honor their story. Friends, I am consistently blown away as I talk to people, as I get to hear the things that, that people have been through, the, the things that people have overcome the stories that are present in our midst. And if we could go around the room and just say, hey, what's, what's your story? We would be in awe. And when somebody invites you into their story, it's like when God says to Moses, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. 
And you know what you begin to do when you take off your shoes, especially in a hot desert wasteland? You begin to walk carefully. You begin to go slowly. And we do this when we honor people's stories, when we acknowledge that everybody's had their heart broken, that everybody's been betrayed, that everybody's experienced middle school. Some of you are having flashbacks right now, right? Like middle school auditorium. This is terrifying. When you acknowledge people's stories, you begin to honor them. You see that they're not just the microcosm of one action. They're not just one thing that's happened, but they are a succession of emotions and feelings that they have been crowned with honor and glory. And so the first thing is we honor their stories. And you know what this requires of you as Christians? To be a curious people. Ask questions. You'd be amazed at what people will share with you because it's been shown psychologically and emotionally that we cannot discern the difference between being listened to and being loved. And so for many of us, that's the beginning of telling people about Jesus, just saying, hey, tell me a little bit of your story. Being people who are safe, being people who are curious, being people who genuinely want to know. We honor their story. The second is we honor their calling. We honor their calling. And so it's, it's, a, it's a natural order of things in our culture. When you talk to somebody, the question's going to come up, well, what do you do? And so just take an interest in that. Say, that, that's really amazing. That's really interesting. How would you decide upon that? And for some people, you'll find that they, from the moment they, they could remember, they were working towards this thing. We call those Princeton grad students. Welcome. And for others, you just see that we kind of careen into our careers. We're not really sure how we got there. But honor their calling. Honor this thing that they've given their life to. The third thing is honor their sacrifice. Friends, I'm so grateful this morning. I think about this every Sunday. We have a, a team of people that show up revolving team to show up and, and really make Ecclesia happen. And, and for those of you that, that I'm talking to this morning, you know who you are. You know I, I am eternally grateful to each one of you because of the difference that you're making. But you've made a, a significant sacrifice to be here this morning. There are easier ways to, to attend church than having to set up for two hours, I promise you. And so you've made a sacrifice. And, and everybody that we encounter in this world has some sense of, of, of something they have traded for a greater good. And so we honor their sacrifice. The fourth thing is we honor their gifts. What if you began to look for people? Like, what, what is the good about them? You know, Courtney has done an, me an amazing uh, favor and service in my life because I can tend to be a little bit critical and last time we went to a church service, we were visiting in Oklahoma. The first question she asked me was not well, like, how was it? What'd you think? She said, what was good? I said, ooh, I see what you're doing there. It's very good. But friends, what if we began to approach people that way? Like, what, what is the beauty of this person? What are their gifts? Jesus looked at people that everybody in society had determined were just mere common people. And he made them into people who literally shaped the world, like Peter 
What was Peter to his culture? What was Peter to the people that he grew up with? He was a fisherman. He stunk. Jesus says, I will make you fish for people. You will be the rock upon which I build my church. And we are reading his letter this morning because Jesus saw something in Peter that apparently is there. But do we take the time to see it? The fifth thing that you can look for is people's authority. We struggle for dignity in our culture. We struggle to be respected. But everybody, as it says in Psalm 8, has a God-given authority. They are invited to be participants in God's rule and reign. They are crowned with glory and honor. What if we began to look at people as people of authority? And the last, and I love this one the most, I spent 10 years as a youth pastor. You see people's future. Friends, if you see middle schoolers for how they are, you'll just be like, well, these are zombies. Like, what, what are we doing here? But if you begin to look for the beauty of what they could be, if you begin to see their future, if you begin to call that out, you move towards honor. And so these, these six filters, I think, are just a starting point for us. Just as we interact with people, what if we began to look at them in a new light? This would forever change people's destinies and their lives. And what we see is, is that this would change the way that we interact with one another. You know, it's, it's kind of no secret that churches have conflict. It's, it's why we have a New Testament, honestly. Like, if you read the New Testament letters, it's basically like, hey, um, you're doing these things and you should stop. Like, that's, that's the impetus for the letters, and Christians and churches and people in relationships have conflict. And here's what we typically do. We point out where we feel wronged. We maximize their faults. We minimize their goodness. We gossip about them. And then you get a crew around you. You know, you get the mob. And you're like, yeah, that person's always right, right? Just trying to find somebody else to say the yes and amen to your gossip. They're always like that. You get the crew around you. You make them into a caricature. You vilify them. And then there's really no reconciliation. But, but here's just a different framework. If you have an honor framework as you approach conflict, as you're hurt, and as you say, okay, like, there's something real here. You're not, you're not belittling what actually happened. You acknowledge, hey, I, I, I know we have something between us like, that we should chat about. But first, let me, let me start here. I value you. I know that God loves you. I know that God's, God's heart is full of joy for you and not disappointment. Like if you came to somebody and you had conflict with them and you said, hey, I value this relationship. I'm going to fight for it. That's where we're starting. That's the starting point. I honor your place and your gifts, especially pertains to, to, to conflict in the church. I honor this relationship and because of all these things, because of my sense of honor towards you, because of our mutual and shared love for one another, we have these things that we need to talk out. That's covenant. That's so different from the way that the world works, right? Like we work in contracts. If you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. But what Peter is saying here is that when you approach people with a sense of covenant, when you approach people with a sense of honor, then you begin to be the kind of person who even in conflict, even in your lesser moments, 
can declare the beauty and the glory of God. Romans 12 verse 10 urges us towards this kind of posture. Paul writes in Romans 12, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. I love that that's the contest that's put forth. Outdo one another in showing honor. And around here, we say one of our values is simply this, that words create worlds. That what if we were to be people who approached every single person within these, these walls and outside these walls with honor, calling out destiny, calling out new futures, calling out the reality that they were crowned with glory and honor by God who made them? How would that change the way that our world works? And friends, I know, I know it's not easy. For those of you who've spent some time in some Christian community groups, you've had that person walk in with all their idiosyncrasies, all the stuff that they do that just drives you nuts, right? And how many of us, we just turn that person into a caricature of the things that annoy us? I can't stand that person. They always do this. And then, you know, eventually that leaks out to the people around you. I've been guilty of this. That's the only way, reason I can talk about it so much. But how many of us do that? And what if instead our communities were to be places of honor? Places that welcomed those that were harder to love because we saw the God-given honor that they lived with. We want our church as a culture to be a place of honor. To be a place that, that calls out people's story and their giftings and their authority and their futures. And sociologists have discovered that in many cultures, there's what, what's called an honor deficit. That in some of these places that honor has been absent for so long, that, that simply pointing somebody on the right path is not going to be enough. There has to be a cultural-wide shift. There has to be a sense of honor restored. That people have endured post-traumatic stress for so long, or they've been undignified by, by the lack of uh, opportunities for jobs for so long, that they begin to diminish their own worth. They begin to see themselves as the society sees them. There's this brilliant book. I encourage every single person to read it. It's by a guy named Chris Arnade. And he was a, an investment banker, Wall Street guy, Super brilliant. Johns Hopkins, he had a PhD in physics, so just one of those people who's good at everything, apparently. And he wrote this book called Dignity. And in that book, he describes the plight of an honor deficit culture. And he goes to these places that are far flung. He goes to the South Bronx. He goes to, to the middle of Ohio, these places that used to be somewhat thriving, but because of the change in manufacturing, because of the changes in the world, have been forgotten and left behind. And he details how drugs have influenced the culture now. And what he describes consistently is just simply the lack of opportunity to work. He says either you have to get out of here, you have to go to college, you have to go somewhere else to find some sense of opportunity, or you stay here and you languish. And then you're, you're a part of this sort of spiral of an honor deficit culture. And as we see from Psalm 8, we were crowned with glory. We were made for dominion. We were made to work alongside God. And it's heartbreaking to see. But what if we, as the church of Jesus Christ, began to say, where there are honor deficits, 
We're going to move into those spaces in order that we might be a people who restore the honor, not just of individuals, but of whole cultures. Chris Arnay describes this disparity. And friends, I want us as a culture to not only be concerned with our own honor, to not only be concerned with the honor as it pertains, and, and I hope you are concerned. Like, I hope in this church, when you hear people gossiping, you're just like, that's dishonorable. I'm not going to be a part of that. But I also hope that we will look to our neighbors. We will look to the, to the surrounding community and say, where is their honor lacking? And how can I be an agent and an ambassador of honor restoration? The church is the place where Jesus tells us what he thinks about us. And he says, I value you. You see this throughout Jesus' life. He goes and he sees people whom the culture has deemed sinful and worthless, and he says, I see you. Zacchaeus, I see you in that tree. I know everybody hates you because of what you've done, but I'm coming to your house tonight. There's this moment in Matthew's gospel where Matthew's describing his, his transition to being a ta- from being a tax collector to being a follower of Jesus. And Matthew is hosting a banquet at his house. And Jesus is at the table. And one of the Pharisees says to him, don't you know that guy's a, a sinner? Don't you know he's worthless? Don't you know he takes advantage of everybody else? And Jesus just looks at him and says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And I think about Matthew being dishonored in his own, own house as a sinner. And in that moment, Jesus just says, I see you. I honor you. Chris Arnade in his book describes the story of a man named Jerry. And Jerry is from Tennessee. He grew up in one of these honor deficit cultures that we see. And he grew up in a family where literally one month all they had to eat was cake mix. He said, my, my dad was too proud to go to a food pantry, too proud, so we, we, we just made do. And he says of his life growing up, he said, I was always called dumb by everyone. My teachers, other students, pretty soon I dropped out of school. I drank and I smoked weed. I did drugs to feel happiness and joy and forget all my pains and my problems. And he says this, I felt so dumb. Nobody wanted me. And we think about like physical pain, longing for food, longing for shelter, this sense of being unwanted is perhaps the most pervasive and insidious results of our inability to take care of the weakest among us. He says, I felt that nobody wanted me. He says, then I got saved at 50. It changed me. I had never felt worthy before of being saved. I was too dumb. Now I understand that I am worthy of the Lord. When you are told all your life that you're dumb, unworthy, you start believing it. But friends, listen to this. God changed that for me. And friends, this morning, we live in a culture that has an honor deficit, but we also live in a world that has an honor deficit because of sin and death. And what Jesus came to do was to restore the honor by taking the dishonor upon his own shoulders, by taking the shame of his own culture, by taking the, the shame of our sin and brokenness upon the cross, Jesus restores the honor for which we were made. And I know that we live in an honor deficit culture. I know that we are a part of this honor deficit world, but I hope you hear me this morning. Just as Jerry said, I no longer feel unworthy. 
that you are worthy, not because of anything that you've done, but because Jesus honors you. And so friends, this morning, I know that some of you have made decisions because you've dishonored yourself. You've not seen the honor for which you were made. You've made decisions that you feel like have irreparably broken your life. And can I say to you this morning that Jesus has overcome your dishonor. That Jesus has overcome that sense of feeling alienated, that sense of feeling unworthy. Jesus steps to you and he says, I see you. I see you. I see you have a story. I see you have a future. I see you have a calling. I see you have an authority. I see you. So would you let Jesus restore the honor in your life? And then would you give that honor away? Would you see others in this world? Would you see them as Jesus sees you? Let us pray. Beautiful God. God, I I just want to pray over this paradigm, this word that we've spoken this morning. God, as we talk about honor, Lord, that our, our, our church, our community here would have a vision for honoring people, honoring them with the dignity of what they were made for, Lord. Lord Jesus, I, I pray that you would make us participants in your beautiful work in this world as you call out new destinies, as you call out new life through honor. And God, I pray that in this moment, Lord, where we may feel still unworthy, we may feel like we're not recipients of that honor, God, that you would communicate your beautiful truth to us, that you endured dishonor so that we might see how valued and how loved we are, that we are your children, your daughters, and your sons. And so, God, this morning, would you confirm this word in our hearts as we move towards the table? God, we see that you have reserved a seat of honor for us. We ask all these things in your name, in the beautiful name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.